Welcome to a special edition of the Northwest Politicast 2022 in politics. I'm Jeff Podula. This week, we look back on some of the top stories of the year, from the January 6th committee to Seattle's seemingly fruitless fight against crime and homelessness. There was no shortage of political intrigue. Over the next hour, we'll look at some of those stories and revisit some of our more interesting interviews and guests. But we begin with this. The Supreme Court, in the most anticipated case of this term, has overturned Roe versus Wade. Justice Samuel Alito writing from the, the 6-3 majority that the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. Roe and Casey are overruled, and the authority to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their elected representatives. That was on Friday, June 24th, but everyone seemed to know it was coming. In May, a draft opinion of the decision was leaked to the press, and very little changed when the decision was finally handed down. On the day of the ruling, we got some initial reaction from Republican strategist Randy Peppel and Democratic strategist Kathy Allen. Well, I expected it. But then now that it's here, I'm sitting here just like staring out the window and being depressed and counting how many times I was in Washington, D.C. arguing for women's rights, including the ability for a woman to choose her reproductive freedom. But the fact is, I'm depressed as heck right now. It really is one of these things that it's hot and it's miserable and all you can get is just news about how much more it's going to be worse in the future. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, Canada doesn't look so bad anymore. It doesn't look bad at all. Randy, it's a disappointing day. Uh, It's a day of overreach, both legal and political by people who should know better. You're a Republican. The Republican Party is the pro-life party. So this seems a bit surprising coming from you. Well, I, I look at the issue as one of personal conscience. And the vast majority of people in the United States really don't like to talk about abortion. It's not their first issue. And it's not something that they are focused on. On the, on a legal side, the Supreme Court did not need to overturn Roe versus Wade in this case. As Justice Roberts wrote, they had to answer the case in front of them. That's what I mean by legal overreach. The political overreach is primarily coming from Democrats who are saying this is the end of the world as we know it, when they know that that is not true. No matter what, that which spoke to me loud today was Boy, I knew that the Trump legacy was not going to be something that went away, but what a thing to be remembering it. Now, that which was, you know, anger and just disrespect for our former president just becomes clear cut hate in terms of what did this guy ended up doing to America that we will never, ever seem to change. So I'm feeling very low, as you can expect, and thinking that, you know, it just keeps getting worse. So next, this goes to the Congress and to the various states. We already have seen a number of states with the so-called trigger laws that automatically outlaw abortion once Roe versus Wade is is struck down. But the sense is that this is not the end-all, be-all here because you're still going to have activists on the left and the right trying to codify their views on this. The reality is that this takes the feds out of the equation. This is now a each state and the representatives in that state will decide what will be the abortion laws in that state. And in multiple states, primarily states like Washington, uh, California, New York, lots of large states, um, abortion will remain as legal tomorrow and next year as it is today. In a number of other states, smaller states, 
uh, in the South, in the, in the Midwest, Mountain West, uh, the abortion laws will change, although abortions have been harder to get in many of those states over the last 20 years as other restrictions have been put in place. So the argument that everything changes around this decision, th- that is a false argument, and a, both sides know it. And that's why I said it's a day of political overreach by those who should know better, because they're attacking the institution of the Supreme Court. And the last thing we need right now is more diminishment of our governing institutions. And that's why uh, I'm disappointed today. I want to push back a little bit. You, you said this this puts it back in the states, takes the feds out of it. What's to prevent a Congress controlled by Democrats codifying Roe or controlled by Republicans from outlawing abortions nationwide? Because they would need far more votes than either side is going to get. I mean, you're going to need super majorities in, in the Congress and the presidency to do anything at the federal level. And instead, what the Supreme Court said is this goes back to the states. I mean, that that is ultimately what was said today. Still be a political issue. And that political issue still has a way of easing itself back into the federal agenda. But certainly will will dominate the next presidential race. Politically, every day in 2022 that a Republican candidate is talking about Runaway inflation, soaring energy prices, rising crime rates, higher taxes, they're winning. Every day they're talking about abortion, they're not. Do you think this changes the calculus for the midterm? Could this be the great equalizer that makes it a bit more competitive in a year where we're expecting to see Republican takeovers? We have actually in our class at the University of Washington, Randy and I have seen that the kind of energy it does bring to people under 25 to get involved in politics has been a substantial for me. I've looked at it and said, yeah, this really is one that's going to keep them, keep them busy, keep them engaged. I think that there will be a few individual races that this will uh, decide the race in the favor of a Democratic candidate. I don't necessarily see those races in Washington state, but I, I, I think there are some around the country that this could be a defining race. But I don't think it changes the dynamic, which is people are frustrated with government right now. That means they pu- tend to punish the uh, president's party. And I fully expect that we will see a, a Republican U.S. Senate and a Republican uh, U.S. House of Representatives. And Republican majorities in our own state legislature because of the same type of partisan overreach out of our own government. That's Republican strategist Randy Peppel and Democratic strategist Kathy Allen on the day that Roe was overturned. But how exactly did that decision affect the midterms? We'll look at that part of the story when this special edition of the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to this special edition of the Northwest Politicast 2022 in politics. I'm Jeff Podula. As we've been discussing, one of the biggest stories of the year was the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision in which the justices overturned Roe v. Wade, eliminating a federal right to abortion. Pundits and analysts say that had a profound impact on the midterm elections, in which an expected red wave never materialized. On the day after Election Day, I spoke with Chairman of the Washington State Republican Party, Caleb Heimlich, 
who offered some very candid thoughts about the results and the future of the GOP. Number one, this is a very polarized and divided country. I think that was uh, clear in the results uh, nationally on Tuesday night and in the days that followed. Uh, so it certainly wasn't as big of a wave as people expected, as polls maybe were showing, but it still is a significant changing of power with Republicans having the majority in the House of Representatives. Again, I think our country is very divided, very polarized. But at the end of the day, at least at the state legislative level, it's going to maintain basically a status of status quo. Democrats might gain a seat here or lose a seat there, but it's essentially going to be a draw, um, which is not what we'd hope for, but it is what the what the voters seem to have said. You say this isn't what the GOP had hoped for. Clearly, you were hoping for that red wave. What do you think went wrong? Was it a messaging problem? Uh, clearly, there was a polling problem that, that missed Democratic voters, much like in 2016, pollsters missed Republican voters. But where do you think the disconnect is? I think the I think what the Democrats did effectively is made this election about abortion and abortion rights. And in Washington state, uh, particularly amongst younger voters, that was a motivating factor for them to come out, to actually vote, uh, to engage and cast their ballots. And then I think for our swing voters, particularly in our suburban legislative districts and uh, maybe congressional districts, that was, a, that was their deciding factor of which party to choose from between. I think we were winning um, on inflation, on concerns about government spending, on concerns about the price of gas. I think we were winning on public safety. Uh, but if voters felt like that was a right that they wanted that was going to be taken away, uh, then they voted to protect that right and voted for the Democrat candidate in that case. I mean, we'll, there's, I think there's a lot of data to crunch, numbers to look at, but that's kind of my initial uh, reaction. Seems sort of like that you're, you're having a little buyer's remorse for that Dobbs decision the Supreme Court handed down over the summer that seemed to have changed the makeup of the race. Well, I mean, obviously, as you know, and everybody listening knows, it wasn't Republicans that decided that. That was the U.S. Supreme Court and, and that. But I do think that shifted things. You look at what happened in 2021 in the Virginia's governor election and their legislative elections, Republicans had big wins in Virginia, a state not too dissimilar to Washington with um, higher educated, lots of suburban voters. And they were a Republican governor was able to win there. They were able to make gains, meaningful gains in the legislature. And even in New Jersey in 2021, Republicans had really positive results. And what happened uh, between 2021 and then November of 2022 was that Dobbs decision in June. I think that uh, fundamentally kind of altered the political dynamics uh, for the country and particularly for Washington state. I think Democrats got away with lying to voters, I would argue, in, in Governor Inslee and others coming out and saying, well, if a Republican wins, they're going to take away this right. That was frankly not true, particularly in Washington state. I mean, if we gained a seat or two or four or eight in the state house, Governor Inslee was still going to be the governor. And when Republicans controlled the Senate from 2013 to 2017, there were no efforts made to change Washington state law. I think most Republicans 
recognize that that is settled law and that was not subject to the Dobbs decision whatsoever. But Democrats came out and used that as a motivator and I think scared voters into saying you can't vote for those Republicans because they're going to do this, which which was not which was dishonest. As you look at how voters turned out across the country, you talk about the issue of abortion. Everywhere abortion access was on the ballot, voters voted to keep abortion access to reject abortion bans. Is this a plank within the Republican Party that is being reconsidered? Because it seems like the voters are sending a strong message, whether it's in Kansas, Kentucky, or elsewhere. Yeah, that's a it's a good point on the results. I think that there's a tension there, obviously, within the party and I think within voters as well. I think I I personally believe that there actually is a middle ground on abortion. I, oftentimes, people go to the extreme on either side. I think the vast majority of voters want access, but they're comfortable with certain restrictions. And uh, whether that's at late-term abortion um, whether it's a different, uh, whether that's 20 weeks or at some scale, I think the average person, if you sit down, is okay with some level, uh, not a not a free for all, not abortion on demand up until birth, but some level of restriction. But in general, voters are very much against um, banning it outright. They want uh, people to have that choice. And so that is uh, what we're seem to be hearing from voters right now. Has there been any discussion within the party about changing that plank of the platform? Not at this point. Um, and I, I think that the fundamental challenge there is that deep down, many Republicans are pro-life and, uh, and that's a deeply held uh, philosophic position. And so we'll see what happens moving forward. Turning to some of the more local races, whether it be for state legislature or or otherwise, some very close races uh, for state legislature, and, and one in particular caught my eye, and that has to do with a Republican-on-Republican Republican race in which Sam Lowe was challenging Robert Sutherland. It seems that the party kind of turned on the incumbent Sutherland and endorsed his opponent. That seemed to be where the money went. What's your take on that race? Well, I would I would just clarify the party did not uh, get involved. Our approach was we're going to let the voters decide. The state party did not get involved. Uh, the county party may have endorsed the incumbent at the legislative district level, but that was not our we didn't. We did not get involved in that race. We, when it's any time there's a Republican versus Republican contest, our approach is the voters of that district deserve to make that decision, and we focus on other races where it's a Republican versus a Democrat. So ultimately, it was up to the voters, and the voters are deciding who they think best represents their district. It seems like that's sort of a, a microcosm of, of what we saw kind of across the country when it comes to Republican voters or voters in general, this idea of Reagan Republicanism versus the new Trump Republicanism. Sutherland certainly fell into that latter category. He was very much a Trump ally, questioned the results of the 2020 election, and a lot of those Trump-allied Republicans lost on election night. This is a big fracture within the party, isn't it? What I would say, generally speaking, is it appears that voters want people, want elected officials, want elected leaders to focus on the future. What are you going to do? What are you talking about that's going to make my tomorrow better? 
Republicans picked up congressional seats in New York and they picked up congressional seats in Florida. And I think in both of those places, even in suburban swing seats, that Republicans were winning on the message of here's what I'm going to do for you to make your life better. And that's, I think, at the end of the day, what voters want to hear. Uh, voters want to know, what are you going to do for my kids? What are you going to do for my community? What are you going to do for us looking ahead? And, and that's where I think anytime you're looking backwards, um, you're taking your eye off of what matters to the voters. They want to look forward. They want to know what's going to be done to make their future better. Voters believe our country is on the wrong track. I mean, all polls are showing that what 65, 70 percent of voters are dissatisfied. So this was not a overwhelmingly affirming referendum on President Biden or the Democrats leadership. And if they take it as such and double down on their radically out of step policies, then they've got uh, a surprise coming in 2024. I think in, in part. Uh, their wins were driven by abortion and a rejection of perceived extremism. Um, and so I think that is that no question voters want competence and they want people that are going to provide for a brighter future. Speaking as a Republican operative for the future of the GOP, does it have to move on from Donald Trump? I think we have to. I would go back to what I just discussed. We have to look to the future. And whether that is a Donald Trump or whether it is someone else, the focus needs to be forward. We're not, voters don't care at this point about 2020. They want to know what are you going to do about 2023 and 2024 and, and my kids and my job and my, my pocketbook. And that's where you saw Glenn Youngkin win in 2021 and DeSantis and Brian Kemp. So I think the 2024 conversation is obviously going to begin in earnest. I think a lot of a lot of voters um, are not going to tune in. Uh, they've got lives to live and we just got through an election and they've got better things to do. Uh, but as those primaries start to heat up next year and whoever announces for president, what what I'm hearing is let's talk about the future. And wh whoever our candidate is, they have to convey an optimistic vision for what they would accomplish um, if voters select them uh, to lead our country forward. That's Washington State Republican Party Chairman Caleb Heimlich in our interview the day after the midterm elections. Also having an effect on the midterms, the votes of 10 Republicans who each supported the impeachment of former President Donald Trump. Two of them were from Washington State, Dan Newhouse and Jamie Herrera-Butler. While Newhouse survived, Herrera-Butler was defeated in the primary and her Trump-backed challenger, Joe Kent, lost in the general, giving the seat to Democrats. I spoke with Paul Query of the Washington Observer about it. I had sort of assumed that Jamie Herrera-Butler would squeak through the primary because there was sort of a crowd to her right. And Joe Kent, who ultimately wound up finishing second in the primary, you know, he's a sort of recent transplant from Portland, which is generally a little bit of a kiss of death in southwest Washington. Folks down there really look askance at the city across the Columbia. But ultimately, that vote against Trump really cost Jamie Herrera Butler her base in that in that district. 
And she was one of two from Washington State, the other being Dan Newhouse over in the 4th Congressional District, but he ultimately survived, which I would have thought that he would have gone down before Jamie Herrera-Butler went down, given the makeup of the of the two congressional districts. Yeah, and I think that it has to do with the sort of star quality of the challengers in that case. I mean, the most prominent challenger to the right of Newhouse was Lauren Culp, and Lauren Culp has kind of damaged goods at this point. And the national Republican money, for the most part, kicked the tires on him and decided they weren't really that interested. Kent, meanwhile, got kind of a lot of um, sort of Trump aligned money for his campaign. And he has just sort of a little more compelling story than than Culp does. Well, to be clear, Joe Kent is an election denier. He believes that Donald Trump won the 2020 election. Yeah, he's a conspiracy theorist. You know, there are lots of reports of him consorting with various unsavory figures on the far right. One of the things that this result has done is kind of make the instant contender out of Marie Glusenkamp Perez, the Democrat, who's a political newcomer. And had she been up against Jamie Herrera-Butler, I think she would have been kind of a non-starter. That's part of my interview with Paul Query of the Washington Observer following the results of the 2022 midterms. Now, we have to take another quick break, but coming up next, it wasn't just the United States. The UK dominated some of the political headlines this year as well. The death of a queen and the resignation of two prime ministers rocked England to the core. We'll have that when this special edition of the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to this special edition of the Northwest Politicast 2022 in politics. I'm Jeff Podula. Well, the year wasn't all about American politics. Chaos in the UK unfolded as Prime Minister Boris Johnson resigned in early September. He was replaced by Liz Truss, who undoubtedly will go down in history as the kingdom's most ineffective political leader. Her policies tanked the British economy, and she resigned after only 49 days in office. All of this amid the backdrop of the death of Queen Elizabeth and Charles III's ascension to the throne. Just after Truss announced her resignation, I spoke with ABC's London correspondent, Tom Rivers. Well, Liz Truss did not outlast the head of lettuce. <laughs> Here, Tom Rivers uh, laughing on the other end of the line. Uh, I'll let you explain it to you before we uh, really get in, into the uh, details of the story here. What, what's this with Liz Truss and the head of lettuce? Well, you know, the Brits have their own unique, very sarcastic sense of humor. And the Daily Star, one of the tabloids here, came forward and started a, a campaign. They, go, they, they basically were mocking the uh, cognitive ability of Liz Truss and said, uh, had a picture of her next to a head of lettuce. And uh, which one will be going off sooner than the other? And uh, as it turned out today, they updated their site. And they said, uh, well, lettuce one, Truss is out of a job. Uh, so the lettuce outlasted the other lettuce who's been occupying 10 Downing Street. Boy, the uh, British press are absolutely ruthless. You don't see a whole lot of that here in the United States. But nevertheless, the British Prime Minister, uh, Liz Truss, as you said, after only about five or six weeks in office. So for those who aren't too familiar with British politics, what exactly led up to this? Well, Liz Truss came in on the heels of uh, the ousting of Boris Johnson. She came in basically with a with an economic policy. She said basically, I'm going to be uh, the person that gets this economy going through growing the economy. And how does she want to accomplish that? She said, well, 
and that all of the planes basically cut programs for the less well-off and giving tax breaks to the very ultra-wealthy here. Her idea was that uh, you know, with more money at the top, it would trickle down to the little minions. Of course, that went over like a lead balloon. And now the penny dropped with, uh, let's trust, you said, uh, my mandate was to do what I wanted to do. You can't do any of this stuff now. So I'm going to step aside and let somebody else run the show. And uh, she'll go down historically as one of the worst, if not the worst, prime ministers in the long history of Britain. How's the British populace reacting to all of this? Because you had the resignation of Boris Johnson, then you had the death of the yep. Queen, then you had the resignation of Liz Truss, plus around the corner in the next yep. couple of months, you're going to have the coronation of the new king. I mean, there's a lot of turmoil yep. in the UK. Yeah, there is. There certainly is. You know, it is almost farcical in a sense. There's been so many memes on social media, derogatory, in the direction of Liz Truss who, as I say, really did not have the ability to uh, to be a prime minister. But put that to the side. It's, it's not farcical because of her policy. The pound tanked. We had the Bank of England having to step in to shore up a number of pension fund operations because they were worried that they wouldn't have enough money to pay out people. You've got people that have mortgages right now because of Liz Trust they're going to be spending potentially three, four, five hundred dollars more a month because of her, if you will, very radical economic policies. The scent of Liz Truss will linger for many people for many, many years to come. She's really screwed things up for the average person very, very badly here. And one thing that's been said, you know, in sports context, you say, well, the Brits really don't have a killer's instinct. They do this time. It's like, don't go away mad. Just go away. Get out of here. Let somebody else run the show. That's ABC's Tom Rivers talking to us in October amidst the chaos of British politics. We have to take another quick break, but when we come back in Congress, the January 6th committee dominated the coverage this past year as they presented the case against former President Donald Trump. When this year-end edition of the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to this special year-end episode of the Northwest Politicast. One story that did dominate the political headlines throughout the year was the January 6th committee. It started with a controversy of who would actually sit on the committee, and once it got into its business, some bombshell hearings and some star eyewitnesses, most notably Cassidy Hutchinson, an aide to Mark Meadows, who was President Trump's chief of staff. I remember Pat saying something to the effect of, Mark, we need to do something more. They're literally calling for the vice president to be effing hung. And Mark had responded something to the effect of, you heard him, Pat. He thinks Mike deserves it. He doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. Joining me now is ABC's Andy Field, who has covered this story from the start and to the finish. And at the end of the year, just before Christmas, we learned what the final report said. And was there anything earth-shattering in it? There were some surprises uh, in the final report, uh, specifically about Cassidy Hutchinson, the, the woman you mentioned who was an aide to Mark Meadows, and was privy to all these conversations and uh, literally worked uh, within steps of the Oval Office and knew pretty much everything that was happening there. She was offered up an attorney when she was asked to testify uh, who was paid for by the Trump Political Action Committee. And this attorney, we now find out, was more interested in protecting Donald Trump than protecting his client, Cassidy Hutchinson, who said, look, just pretend uh, you don't recall things and we'll get you in and out of there real quick. And 
she had a real moral problem with this and she realized that she was going to get thrown under the bus one way or the other by team trump so she got rid of this attorney pretty quickly reported all this stuff to the committee and what's interesting in this final report now that we're seeing all the transcripts is that there are two phrases uh, that came up a lot one is i don't recall and these were from trump loyalists who didn't feel like testifying what they really knew one person said he didn't recall what he was doing on January 6th or where he was, which is a bit hard to believe. And the other one was the favorite number of uh, people like uh, Michael Flynn and uh, Roger Stone and others. Uh, that number kept coming up a lot in this testimony when they would ask questions and they would say fifth, as in Fifth Amendment. They didn't want to talk about anything to incriminate themselves. They wouldn't even confirm their names or where they lived. You know, it's laughable from the outside, but just deadly serious when it comes to our democracy that some of these people were entrusted with protecting it. It's just extraordinary the levels of what looks like almost Tony Soprano mob-like activity going on behind the scenes to stop people from testifying or from not testifying at all. So what is coming of this? We know that that final report had some criminal referrals. Congress itself and a committee thereof cannot really throw someone in jail that has to be the justice department so what's next what the committee can do is make recommendations for laws uh, and one of them was to modernize that 135 year old election law that donald trump and his allies wanted mike pence the vice president to skew in their direction and it was basically updating the uh, electoral college count act which would clarify the role of the vice president in counting electoral votes and raise the thresholds for objecting to results other recommendations probably won't become law with a Republican-controlled House. One of them was for Congress to devise a way for Donald Trump to be barred from holding federal office under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which prevents those who, quote, engaged in an insurrection or gave aid and comfort to the enemy from holding office. Another recommendation is for the House to overhaul its subpoena authority, with the report writers noting that the chamber's authority to enforce the subpoenas through civil litigation is not clear. And, of course, even members of the House had refused subpoenas, and uh, the committee had recommended them for um, ethics committee review and uh, even as much as censure. But of course, with the new Republican Congress coming in, we know none of that will happen because you need a majority of the votes to make these things happen, and the Republicans are not going to vote to censure themselves. What about some of the players? Is anyone going to go to prison? Well, that's up to the Justice Department. It's up to a jury. Certainly, the Justice Department has its own investigations ongoing, and it has been for for several years into Donald Trump and to other people surrounding uh, the January 6th attacks. These referrals accusing President Trump of violating insurrection acts are very serious charges, but the Justice Department doesn't have to act on it. I'm willing to bet that the Justice Department is going to present its own charges when it's ready to do it, and it has a, a foolproof, uh, ironclad case against the former president, if indeed they get that evidence. So I guess the final question would be, did the January 6th committee do its job did it what's the reaction in washington the reaction depends on which party you're in the republicans who said this was a kangaroo court that uh, the trump team didn't get a chance to present its its side the committee had welcomed former president trump and others in fact even subpoenaed him he managed to of course run out the clock on that at one point in this whole process he said he would be glad to talk to them as long as they did it live and in person but the fact of the matter is is that for those who say this was a biased inquisition Virtually every witness was a Republican Trump loyalist. These are people who worked to elect him twice, who were loyal to him, who were hired by him, who had sworn allegiance to Donald Trump. And this includes 
some of the state lawmakers and secretaries of state and other people who were involved where Donald Trump called them and tried to pressure them to change the vote in their state. And they said, look, I voted for Donald Trump, but I could not in good conscience break the law, which is why they ended up testifying there. So almost all the witnesses against Donald Trump were people who said they liked Donald Trump until this happened. All right, ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jeff. Now we have to take another quick break, but when we come back, one year into his term as Seattle mayor, Bruce Harrell reflects on the sometimes toxic nature of city politics when this special edition of the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to this special edition of the Northwest Politicast 2022 in politics. I'm Jeff Pogela. Well, this past year was also the first year in office for a new Seattle mayor. Last fall, Bruce Harrell defeated former city council president and progressive candidate Lorena Gonzalez in a hard-fought race. I had a chance to talk to him about the divisive nature of Seattle politics. You were president of the Seattle City Council, as we've talked about. You were mayor for five days. You're mayor now for a, a year or so. At times, the not so much with you, but with previous mayors, the relationship has been toxic between the council and the mayor's office. How is your working relationship with them at the moment? Well, you know, I guess you'd have to ask them. I would describe it as extremely productive and collaborative. The issues I have with the council, I try to address them not in the media or in public. I literally go down to the second floor. I'm fond of the second floor often. I've worked there for 12 years. I literally go to their offices. Um, historically, I know council members come to the seventh floor and meet in the, the larger office. And, and I don't do that just as symbolic change. I do that as meaningful change because uh, you'll see my deputy mayors and members of my executive team routinely either go down to the floor to testify or talk to them. So I... I just try to keep it positive. And, you know, I uh, coming from an athletic background, when I look at the team, I have my executive team, but everyone's on the same team. And I have to, when I talk about one Seattle, it includes the council, it includes the city attorney's office, it includes the, the municipal court system. So what we've done, which is a new approach, Jeff, is I've gone way out of my way to make sure that this machine in the city is sort of working well. And so Ann Davidson, the newly elected city attorney, she and I, her team. We had a long meeting yesterday. And so I'm trying to, that was the earlier part when I talked about building these systems. That's the work I have to do. So I think we have a good relationship. Um, and I know two recently announced that they're not running again. So uh, I'm just watching the newspaper and seeing how it plays out. And and I every time I, I hear about some statement, I just thank them for their service. Uh, yes, the two you mentioned, uh, Lisa Herbold and Deborah Juarez, both not running for re-election uh, when their terms are up. Rightly or wrongly, though, there is a perception that the city council is kind of running the show instead of the mayor's office. How do you respond to that? Well, I don't think I think that would be a meritless conclusion. Um, they, they're running their part. But, you know, I don't take pride in who's running this, who's running that. And I, and I don't think anyone actually believes that. Uh, the, the city council has a strong role in city government. They pass the budget and they pass the laws. That is a critical role but without implementation and executive and executive presence and sort of a coach, if you will, it's not going to get done. So I, if, if people want to have that, draw that conclusion, that's fine. But I don't think that's the reality or the assumptions we work under. Finally, as we wrap up, what are your goals for this coming year? So moving forward, um, we're pretty excited about uh, how we created the unified care team work because that will allow us, again, people to house people. 
and do it in a geographic manner so that the community and the, the neighborhoods can sort of know the teams we're working with in the city. We have the housing levy uh, where we're going to create thousands and thousands of much needed unit and housing. I'll put that on the ballot this year. Our climate legislation is bold. We received a international award from the Bloomberg Foundation for the work we're doing on our on our specific Green New Deal. And then I issued an executive order that really fine tunes and even accelerates some of the work that we're going to do. Our place recruitment plan, having more officers here, our downtown revitalization plan, where we're taking community-based organizations, uh, uh, mid-ambassadors, place officers, neighborhood residents all together in sort of a coffee corner kind of format so I could have activation downtown. We have some very exciting things in 2023. And the beauty is, is I think I positioned it for 2020 in, in 2022. Everything we did in 2022, changing the narrative, changing the um, how we go about things is, is for sustainable change. And I've said publicly, if I just did something that wasn't sustainable, even, for example, on 12th and Jackson, um, if I said it's not sustainable, then it's all for not. It's just for a one-day headline. So what I, I've been very methodical in making sure we can do things in a manner that improves the city for the long run. And that's, that's our vision. That's Seattle Mayor Bruce Harrell reflecting on his first year in office. And that will do it for this special year-end episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Podula. Thank you for listening, and have a happy new year.